Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. This week, we have a great interview with Dr. Mira Baindur. She's an environmental philosopher, and I can't wait to hear more about her current and past work. So greetings, Mira. Um, would you mind introducing yourself briefly to our audience? Thank you, Kate. Uh, my name is Mira Baindur, and I live in Bangalore, India. I work as a, I'm a philosopher working as a professor in um, RE University in Bangalore um, in the liberal arts and sciences uh, school. And um, my work has been uh, around Indian philosophy, basically. And I had a love for nature and I'm, my graduate, undergraduate degree is in environmental sciences. So I have been uh, a lot in love with nature from when I was young. I don't know when I picked it up, but uh, it called to me. And so I thought environmental science would do that for me. And then uh, when I saw how humans would treat nature or the non-human world, uh, I wanted to conserve it. I wanted to protect the trees. There was a lot of anti-tree cutting campaign going on when I was young. And then I moved into psychology because I thought if we can mess around with people's heads and somehow prevent them from um, destroying nature, I could do that. Then I realized that's not the answer. And fortunately, I came across some work in philosophy and environmental philosophy and ethics. So I thought philosophy is the answer. So I studied philosophy and at my PhD, uh, looking at uh, nature in our own culture, because a lot of examples of people being beautifully in tune with nature living with nature, uh, in, embedded in it without the violence towards it is available in our culture. And I thought if I bring that to the foreground, perhaps people start to reflect on how they've changed and go back to being um, benevolent and uh, in a, into a benevolent relationship with nature rather than the violent one that they seek. So that's kind of my journey with environment. And that's how I turned out being an environmental philosopher. Um, apart from that, I think um, I love to read. And I, write, I love to uh, also uh, work with my hands, like um, crafting and recycling crafts and things like that. So that's a little bit of an extra uh, incentive to kind of preserve beauty in the world, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I really resonate with that. How would you describe the work you do with plants? Uh, because I work in environmental philosophy, um, in the beginning, my, my, my interest was in the moving things, right? The animal things. But I've always loved trees. Uh, my earliest memories are of climbing on a, a little tree. Uh, it was a, it was a, concrete compound but there was a guava tree and I used to sit on top of the branches and read my books like I used to read Enid Blyton's on top of a guava tree and you could just pluck a fruit and eat it it was like growing next to it and I guess I just love trees and I love to hug them and I like to scratch my back on them sometimes so this is a, a connection and I like to look at the sky through the leaves. There was this kind of romance with trees that was always going on. And so I think I started to look at the way our culture, because we are always surrounded by culture. We are surrounded by dance. 
by cooking, by an enormous amount of cooking uh, cuisine. Indian cuisine is very, very rich. And uh, there's plant material all around. It's like um, there's always plants around us, whether it's grass. And there would be this grass that would be used for a, for a worship. Uh, Ganesha, the elephant-headed god, for instance, uh, on the day he's actually, because he's an elephant, he's worshipped with plant material. So they will, so we go and pluck all kinds of uh, plants that uh, are so-called weed, which we do not know the use of, but they're all necessary in that particular uh, ritual or worship. And so my work with plants, I shift to the plant because they are silent and they kind of, uh, there's a kind of energy connection, you could say. Um, the animals being more sentient were more like uh, there was more of a, a love or a kind of uh, a, a relationship. But with the plants, it was more like a being. Like me and the plants were okay with each other. We did not have to do anything to establish our relationship. It was all, already always related through, I think the way I related to plants was through a deeper connection of life. Whereas with the animals, it all my, the mind came in between. So I would not try to establish a connection with a barking dog, for instance, because I had this emotional kind of interaction with it. But with a tree or a plant, I would, uh, I would feel the connection of life. Uh, today, I was walking past in my university and I felt those, those, those huge trees that had been cut. I felt so sorrowful. I put my hand on them and I said, sorry. Sorry, my people have been so bad to you. And I kind of felt the tree forgive me, kind of felt, it felt good. Uh, but I also felt like crying at the time. So it's a kind of a deeper relationship than a cognitive or a language relationship. And that is something, um, that is something my work with plants is therefore going more, moving into the consciousness of it rather than being in the, in the philosophical realm. I talk with nature, I talk about environment, but my relationship with plants goes to a more a spiritual sense, you could say. So I wouldn't, uh, I think the word for it would be a druidic kind of relationship. So, uh, and I exactly, when I go to a tree or a plant, I exactly know which leaf to pluck. It kind of says you can take it from there and I know I can take it from there. And sometimes I no, don't touch me today. And I know that it's a kind of a, I don't know, it's an innate communication and um, I'm the crazy lady who talks to the plants. So uh, I guess that is my work with plants because I cannot, articulate rationally uh, this deep sense of connection. And I guess if people were sensitive enough, they could feel it. And I'm looking through, that's why I turn to art and poetry and writing uh, and a kind of communion with nature to kind of articulate that and deepen that relationship. Yeah, that's my work with plants. Awesome. And what do you think as you're describing the relationship, um, I love the way you talk about kind of more cerebral processing as opposed to kind of just that immediate connection through being. Um, what do you think that humans can learn from plants? I think one of the most important things that humans can learn from plants is that the plants, uh, here I can actually talk about a very cerebral thing, right? Uh, the plants are zero energy consumers. They take and they give back. 
they don't put anything extra out into the, I mean, compared to even animals, uh, the plants are the most energy efficient systems in the world. They in fact produce surplus. So it is something, I think the plants are the giving beings. And, you know, I remember the poem, The Giving Tree, right? So that's kind of giving to the humans, but these are giving to the environment. And every blade of grass, it, it kind of balances out what it takes, the energy, the water, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the resources, and it gives back exactly what it has taken. And not only that, while doing that, it also feeds other organisms and their systems. So it's kind of this, if you're looking for an energy perpetual machine that runs on low, low cost energy efficient system, plants are the ones. And perhaps if we learn how plants are, they're also very slow. They take their time. And morally, I would say we learn to take it slow. Yeah, they, they don't, they're not in a hurry. They just wait for the right season. They wait for the right time. Even their growth is not, they, they shoot up in their sunlight, but after they shoot up and they're going to, they take their time in their own way. They take their time to really produce that fruit, produce that seed. And uh, that is something morally old learn. And otherwise I would learn the act of you know, giving and taking equally, like not leaving a vacuum because you've taken something out. Speaking of the plants, um, you had talked before about cultural importance with understanding kind of nonviolent relationships with plants. And one of the things that um, the group that we're both a part of, the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene, um, one of their major area of interest is having respect for plants. Um, and so I was wondering, what does having respect for plants mean to you and how is it embodied? I think culturally, I think having respect for plant is to accommodate its growing and its needs according to season. For me, uh, the, the, it is embodied in a verse by the great uh, poet Kabir. He says, uh, um, he says that uh, slowly, slowly, oh mind, everything will happen slowly. The gardener can water a hundred pots, but the seed will, will, will sprout when it will. Right? So he says that. So one of the things that I feel that the respect of plant is if a plant is a winter plant, you let it grow in winter. You don't put it in an icebox or something and create this artificial environment and force it to grow in a season it is not related to. And I think the seasonal growing, because our relationship to plant has almost, there's this natural wild plant which you let it be. And we usually don't interact with them, but we interact with agroecology. We interact with the plants that we feed off and we grow and we nurture in the Anthropocene, the plants that are everyday ours. So you're, you, you, you try and grow the wrong flower in the wrong season using artificial means and cloaking. You try and grow plants inside the house where they will never see the sun. Uh, the, the unnatural ways of, um, of dealing with plants which uh, off season. So you keep the nature cycle, just like you would keep the nature cycle for yourself. 
uh, you would keep the nature cycle for the plants. So I think one of the most respectful things you can do is to uh, location and times, place and time. So the place for the plant and the time. So I think in some sense, even if you're gardening, you make sure that you're growing a, a desert plant in a deserty kind of place and you're growing a, a tropical plant in a tropical plant. You don't, you're not displacing it into an Eden and putting it in an aquarium because you want to stare at it, right? So for me, um, I felt, uh, you know, when people put animals in a zoo, in the beginning, the zoos were for watching. Now, of course, they're for breeding and stuff like that. But um, when I went to this place in England, I think it's called the Eden Park or something like that, the Project Eden. So when I went there, there were these huge globes inside which they were growing all these hot, humid plants. For me, I had the same feeling that these plants are in a zoo, just like the animals are in a zoo. So I guess I was the only person who did not appreciate the enormous work done by Project Eden in preserving the uh, tropical plants. I don't like orangeries in, in Berlin. I don't like these because I feel like the plants are being enslaved because that is what enslavement is, putting them in a time and messing around with their genes definitely is another form of enslavement, not modifying their genes and turning them into some kind of super plants or something. So the respect for plant is not to interfere with their natural season, their location, because that's what it is and their growth. I mean, I don't mind people plucking a plant and eating it because that's something that in the Anthropocene, we have to be at least vegan, if not vegetarian. Or if, you, if you're looking at, you know, your own, uh, if you're looking at a cow and you're taking care of the cow, you may have to feed grass to the cow, you may have to cut. That is not bad because the plants are ready for that kind of, they've evolved with us and they're okay for being used. But because they will be preserved in their in their genetics. But what is wrong is to try and force them, enslave them to do your bidding where they don't want to and did not. So I think that is something, the naturalness of plants, which is, I guess, an animal metaphor would be farm animals versus factory animals. So the same holds true for plants also, factory plants versus farm plants or open air plants. Definitely. That's an area that I'm really interested in, um, whether or how to understand the distinction between wild and domestic <coughs> and proper domestic care, um, because there's a lot of discussion in philosophy about those questions surrounding especially other animals. Um, but I think that kind of sorting out what is wild and what is domestic can be a little more fraught in some cases in, in plants. Um, can you talk a little bit more about kind of your approach to some of those questions of domestic versus wild? Uh, so that category doesn't exist in Indian philosophy. Yeah, right? Everything is domestic. Because, you know, the, the point is, the reason wild and domestic don't exist is we don't have the concept of Eden, right? So the, the natural is everywhere. So everything is Prakriti, everything is nature. So we don't have a wild and a domestic. And even domestication is not there. In the sense, you have what you call labor animals. They're employed in labor. 
So you would, you would in, in the modern ages, we trade and all that, but in the if slightly older farmer would look at his animals more like a partner in his agriculture. So if he had to sell his buffalo or something, he would weep, right? So it was more like a member of the family, uh, definitely a lower hierarchical member, a caste member, but he would also, the, the, uh, the animal or even the plant would be a member of the family. And a lot of plants are also members of the family, like the, the tree the grandfather planted is a symbol of the grandfather. So the, the, so the idea of wild, because the idea of the wild and domestic doesn't exist, it is that you can take eat from the wild because for a long time, Indian um, sages have lived in the forest and forests, forests are these places of utopian oneness between the tree and the, and the human. So we have stories, for example, the famous, uh, very famous Shakuntala the, of Kalidasa. She is called Shakuntala because she was birthed in a forest and abandoned. And these little peacocks called Shakuns, uh, kind of Shakun birds, they fed her with berries and they kept her alive till a person found her. So we have trees um, taking care of human beings. We have uh, trees taking care of animals. We have plants that nourish and support uh, sages in their thing. We have all the ashram people watering the plants in the forest. Uh, so we have these kind of, we also have people burning forests and clear filling them to make cities. So there is no, there's no clear, uh, and they would know how to burn. So they would say that we burn in this season and this is all we burn. And they have their traditional wisdom on how much of the flower, uh, land should be burned and when it should be burned and when we should go. So they will leave the world to recover and then they'll go back when the world is ready to be renewed. So they work as a part of the ecology of that place. So it was called jhum cultivation, like the slash and burn. But with Anthropocene, with modernity coming in and the land deeds being given and the rights over the land, the ownership, uh, the economic interference, the futures market, all those kind of practices are going away. So we find that actually now wild and domestic is becoming a, because we created conservation and we created that. But if you go to a village, you will actually find a patch of a wild jungle, a sacred grove, right in the middle of the town square. Nobody would clean away the leaves or anything. It'll be like a very thick growth of say four or five trees. And there would be a little snake statue because it's the grove of the snakes. Nobody would actually, uh, children will be playing in the trunks. It's actually as wild as it can get in the middle of a village. So uh, that is something that uh, that is natural to people. So people don't mind going into the forest and getting stuff for themselves. So that is, in terms of conservations, they have a problem with that. Uh, and so it's, 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 it's a negotiation, I think, as India moves forward into the scientific conservation versus the people's conservation. And people have again and again pointed out that uh, because monkeys can come in into your uh, into your house and take their food and sometimes people say it's okay they're hungry let them eat right so so the the wild and the domestic are not uh, so separated and i think one of the ways you can see it is the entire world is our garden and there's just different types of garden the wild is a different type of a garden. You you let parts of your garden grow wild with hay or something to give a aesthetic effect. So I think if you if you took charge, if you take charge only of one part of your life, like the domestic and 
forgot that these other parts are yours. So Amazon jungles getting cleared away doesn't affect people because the whole thing, it doesn't affect people personally. The way your tree in front of your house gets cut, you get upset and you fight for it. I've seen people fighting for trees in Bangalore's roads, like when they're cutting trees for a flyover, but they don't fight for clear, clear felling of trees in a forest which is far away from them because that is wild. And the wild has no voice. But if you say they are also a part of my garden, then you would fight for the Amazon jungle. You would also fight for that little piece of weed that is on top of a mountain. So I think the entire world is domestic because we as humans are grown up children of nature. We are the elders and we have to care for everyone else. In your daily life, which plants are most present for you and how do they appear? So most of the time, um, because I live in an apartment complex, the plants are all in the next door farm. There's a farm next door. So they're trees again. So in my daily life, uh, Bangalore is a beautiful city with lots of flowering trees. And uh, the way the town planners have planted it is every season has got one tree. So this is a yellow season. Right now, it's a pink season. If you go on Instagram, you will see everywhere Bangalore has got pink flowers. The pink trumpet is flowering everywhere. And then the earliest uh, in February, you have the jacaranda, which is the purple flower. So plants and flowers, the, the easiest presence of plants for me is the flowers when they wave their color around. They're present for me that way. The other way they're present is through the through my cooking, through my cuisine and my medicine. They're, they're not present as plants, but they're present as their contribution to my life because I believe a lot in Ayurveda and uh, medicines that come from plants. And so uh, the turmeric that I have every day, I know it's from a plant. I know the jeera, the, the cumin seeds are from a plant. I actually know from where it comes and how it is planted. I know the shape of the field. Uh, I'm also aware that even the milk that I'm taking is because a cow ate the grass. So there's a lot of this transformative uh, energy. And um, I keep asking my students again and again, when is the last time you touched a tree? And they'll all say yesterday, day before, and say the exact, the wood that is in front of you was a tree at one point of time. And everybody's shocked. The paper was tree. So you touch trees, you touch plants every day. They're most close to your body. The cloth that I wear is from a plant, right? You were talking about yarn. So it is like, uh, especially if I'm wearing cotton, and even if I'm wearing wool, the sheep ate grass, which became the wool that became the, you know? So it is like, uh, um, it is like this is the house that Jack built. Everything goes back to the plants ultimately, and so I think my everyday plants presents me. And I think I, being a philosopher and being involved in this work has made me, especially in in between the thoughts, it just happens that I'm just walking. And as I was talking to you, I'm like, oh, okay, um, this is cotton. Oh, that's plant. Oh, the cardboard is plant. And oh. This is plant. Oh, I have a grass mat here. That's plant. So it's like it keeps it. I suddenly remember where they came from, like a source, right? And it's like connecting to the source. And so for me, plants present themselves as source. But most aware is when I eat or drink or I'm having tulsi. Tulsi is one of my favorite plants, the holy basil. I even feel the taste of it all the time. 
So food is my first connection to plants. I they presence myself every day. I'm a full scale vegetarian, so um, all the tastes that they bring to me are from the plants. Um, do you have a favorite plant? Yeah, I think the tulsi would be it. Because as a plant, uh, I love trees, but as a plant, I love that uh, fragrant. Uh, and it's always been connected to sacred and it has legends around it. Um, often when I, it's also my comfort food. So when I feel anxious, if I chew on a piece of tulsi leaf, I feel very good. Uh, I do, I used to use the beetle leaf, but that's more astringent. The tulsi is much more comforting. And tulsis are also uh, used in the worship of God. So if you put a little bit of um, tulsi into the water, it tastes very nice. So it tastes kind of sweet. One of the other areas of interest in the networking with plants um, collaboration is education because many of us are teachers. Um, many of us also consider ourselves to be students. Um, which types of education do you participate in as a teacher, as a student or both? And what do you think the role of education is in net humans networking with plants? Has your own experience as a student influenced the work you do with plants? I think almost, because I think a love for biology and therefore choosing to study biology, and you get the fascination for how fragile life is, and the eye, and then looking at the intricacies of a DNA and RNA, and I don't know the 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 way water is transported up the xylem and phloem. And I was like fascinated because I was studying physics and biology at the same time. And the humans took so much effort, so many equations to get to do what plants just did, right? I'm like, uh, so there was this one class that I remember in, in my undergrad, I was doing the, the functioning of the, uh, the, the pump, right? When you press the, water the pump comes up right and there's some pressure principle and I was asked to calculate in a complex equation how much volume of water will come up and how much pressure and how the how the pump works right the hand pump and and at the same time my teacher was teaching me about xylem and phloem and she was talking about the world's tallest tree and these little tubes that were sending up water to the last and I kind of in my image this is this five feet pump and this equation and the energy that was required for it. And you, we did have pump bells in those times and it was very tiring. And I was like this, so many feet up in the sky and the last and transpiration occurs and it just zoops up the water just like, what kind of a straw is it? You know. So I think at that time I had so much admiration for the world of nature. And I think what, what therefore what has happened in my education is uh, when I when I when uh, I may be teaching a lot of different classes, I teach philosophy. I sometimes teach, uh, uh, let us say, I try and mix up the love of nature inside my. So if I'm doing, let us say, Sanskrit poetry, uh, which I'm actually doing, I'm teaching Sanskrit as a language. I pick a nature poem. I pick Rutu Samhara, which is this, uh, which is the, uh, which is the 
which is the coming together of seasons, which is a description of different seasons by the great poet Kalidasa. So if there's if there's something, I pick an environmental literature to discuss as a debate. Um, in India studies, when they're doing India, I have environment in India as a topic. When I'm discussing aesthetics or rasa, uh, which is the aesthetics, I discuss the, um, the, the, the idea of nature's beauty. I, I bring in that and it is not like I'm morally preaching to the students, but I just point. I point to them the wonders of it. And I feel that their, their sense of wonder pushes them further to explore. And five days later, I have uh, students kind of joining the nature club. I have, I'm not in charge of the nature club, but because of what I've said, and I talk about the rain and the trees and everything, and suddenly they're all looking and saying, hey, these trees have been cut down. So they start nature, which has been backgrounded, uh, has become like a invisible, starts getting foregrounded in their life and they become visible. And I think that is the best thing we can do. And it no amount of information, uh, no amount of preachy talking is going to help as much as when you start pointing and say, hey, look, did you notice those bugs are, are on the leaf? They're red and this is green. And I haven't seen this plant before. What is it? Did you want to Google and find out what that is? Oh my God, this plant is in South America. Why is it in India? So find out. Right. So this is exactly what, uh, why is moss growing only on one side of the building? So these kind of little pointies, which are also in the everyday interactions, they're not inside the classroom perfectly. So you become a, like a, like a druid, you become a repository of this knowledge that you kind of sprinkle here and there. It, I kind of feel it like a plant wand, you kind of little sprinkle little seeds of and you have to be patient because they're not going to suddenly go marching off saving trees. But the next time they're standing in front of a polyester and a cotton, um, a, a fast fashion and a more sustainable fashion, they will think a little. And I hope by then those little seeds in their head would have sprung to some kind of uh, fratition and they would be, uh, the, 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 the knowledge would be harvested in their heads. So... Uh, that is something. And I think following from that, the other thing that I really think as an educationist, uh, because I am a full-time professor and a teacher. And so what happens is, in, in a, at least in India, a lot of people defer to teachers as wisdom. So if, even if I'm traveling in a, in a taxi and I tell that person um, I'm a teacher, he immediately has that guru respect for somebody who's a teacher. Uh, they may not be very respectful. It was earlier on, they're not so respectful. But even then, there's a little bit of deference. So when you say something, they listen. So you have that listening for teachers. And that is good because sometimes you can go and prevent your neighbor from cutting a tree uh, and say, why don't you use this net instead? It'll be okay. Because if you cut the tree, your house may fall. Because right now, the balance of the water and everything is okay. So then they listen to you. Even if you're telling them science, they'll they first, they listen because it comes from the right place. So being in that right place, it's a kind of powerful place. It can be misused. And But when you're in education, we have to be wary because what we say, everything is a seed. So you have to plant the right seed. And so you have to be also very careful because sometimes you say something, something and it can, be, it can mean a totally different thing the way it lands on people. So uh, being a teacher also makes you very careful because 
you know, you say one wrong thing in class and then it can backfire in the exam. <laughs> so that's how it is. So I think that is something which is fortunate for us as educators that we pick it up in the class and we can carry that teaching into areas which have real impact. And sometimes I feel what I do outside has more impact than what I do inside the classroom. Because ultimately, I think those things matter more. Are there any um, projects that you're working currently on that you're really excited about or that you're looking to the future with? So I'm a part of a project that is putting together a global environmental humanities because I feel that uh, people who are local cannot relate to the environment at the global level. And so you need to travel because traveling really opened my eyes to the fact that there's a whole community of people, plus the problems that we face in the environment are world problems. They are not mine or your problems. So the global scale of understanding these problems comes when you travel from country to country. So in the project also, I say, I said this again, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes the entire world to raise an environmentalist. So I think uh, unless I had, uh, I didn't, I when I went to Oregon and then I checked out the deep forests there, the large forests, uh, when I saw the redwood trees, there were a couple. And then uh, when I come back and I see the banyan tree, then I understand the magnificence of trees on all continents. I guess I would say the same about the Australian shrubland. When I went to, when I saw the icy, uh, you know, in, in Canada, it was all snowed over. But when I kind of rubbed off the little bit of snow from my um, host, hostess's lawn, they were like little green shoots which were growing under the snow. The snow was actually protecting the plants from the frost. And that for me tells me something about snow, which I didn't know. The, the, uh, the practical, I would read, I have read that in a book, but actually experiencing that. So experiencing climates, experiencing people, and also with native indigenous people, they're not going around everywhere. So when you mean, when you seek their wisdom, you have to go to them. And I think that is something also. So my project involves creating this global environmental humanities program, along with people from the University of Norway, uh, Karnipas in Brazil, the Highland Institute in Nagaland, uh, the Fisheries Institute in Norway. So all of us and uh, my own university, we're putting together this program, trying to create this um, awareness and create a work in education in the environment in a more formal level, because uh, it's just not enough to have goodwill. It also needs to have a structure and produce this whole, uh, the, the violent people always are producing armies of violence. How about producing armies of peace and, you know, peace messengers and uh, environmental messengers and plant lovers, right? So we should also uh, kind of, if we are people who are going to produce armies, we need to set the balance by producing knowledgeable people. And I think education, so my project in environmental, global environmental humanities uh, is very, very crucial for myself because I see myself that it is the youngsters who are now going to face the worst of the thing. 
I will be long gone before the world is in that kind of state of collapse where the people are fighting over bottles of water. In my own childhood, we could drink water from any tap in India. And at that time, we used to joke saying, there will be a time when there will be no water and everybody will buy water in bottles. And all of us giggled in the class. This was in my fifth standard, fifth grade. And today it is perfectly true. I can't reach for a bottle free. I have to pay for it. And some people are saying that now people are giggling when I say at one, one point of time, they'll be like, you have to pay for the air you breathe. And people are giggling today. And so I'm scared, like in another 50 years, people may be actually buying air like they buy water now. And so I think it is important for us to, uh, to apologize, first of all, to our younger generation. Uh, and then give them the wisdom that they need to recover and not make the mistakes we did. I think the problem is that when we give the wisdom, we don't apologize as the elder generation. So I think apology followed by trying to um, tell them that these are the mistakes we did, don't do this. And I think uh, the, the righteousness that we have, like we will do what we want, but you have to take care of it is I think wrong. And I think that is what my project involves, both ethics and writing, reading, disseminating, talking, doing workshops, or simply pointing out a tree. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mira. Um, we'll provide more information about Mira's um, work, both her book and her Google Scholar and academia.edu profiles so that you can keep up to date with her publications and her work. Um, I just want to thank you again for joining us today on the podcast. Um, I can't wait uh, to read more of your work. And um, yeah, I look forward to our future conversations and discussions. Thank you so much, Kate. Uh, I love talking about my favorite subject, of course. And I <laughs> And to the listeners, um, go hug a treat. Thank you for joining us today on the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. If you're interested in joining our group, feel free to check out our website at networkingwithplants.org or feel free to reach out by email at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.